0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. The inequality between the haves and the have-nots has reached unprecedented levels. According to Oxfam, a global organisation that fights inequality to end poverty... Since 2020, the five richest men in the world have seen their fortunes more than double, while almost 5 billion people have seen their wealth fall. Globally, men own more than 105 trillion US dollars more wealth than women. The world's richest 1% own 43% of all global financial assets. In other words, the wealthy got wealthier, everybody else got a lot poorer. Which is what I'm going to be unpacking on the show today with Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dashan. Good to be here. According to Oxfam, Unsurprisingly, there has been a continuous and dramatic increase in wealth for the top 1% compared to billions of people around the world whose material conditions are worsening. Um, Peter, could you give us an overview of this and how we have allowed this to happen?
1: Year after year, we've seen basically the the same story that the majority of the world's wealth is concentrated in, in very few hands, It goes down to uh, the kind of inherent workings of capitalism in various forms, as well as the ruling economic ideology that influences policy and public debate.
0: Since 2020, the five richest men in the world have seen their fortunes more than double, while almost 5 billion people have seen their wealth fall. What has caused this level of inequality?
1: Well, I mean, if you're talking about the most recent dynamics in global inequality, that would be largely a a COVID story, uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, and the increase in the value of financial holdings, which are very unequally owned. You know, in in the US, it's something like the last uh, time I, I checked in on the statistics Something like the top 10% of the population owns nearly 80% of all uh, financial wealth, uh, mostly stocks, but also bonds, et cetera. So when you have uh, uh, shutdowns and supply chain disruptions, people not going to work, people staying at home, uh, and then at the same time, you have uh, just an increase in the value of various stocks, that's just... Mathematically going to increase uh, the the wealth inequality uh, in any any country where that's occurring. So the the value of, of paper claims to wealth uh, stocks going up means that the, the wealth of the very few people who tend to own a disproportionate amount of stocks goes up far more than the wealth of the vast majority that if they own any uh, stocks, it's very little. You know, you mentioned
0: something interesting that if we just look at the most recent, um, and so let's do that just for this next question as well, where um, if you look at the most recent aspects, then COVID is a big um, part of the story. And throughout the pandemic, one of the um, recurring narratives of COVID is that it, it cuts across race, it cuts across religion, Everybody is going to be affected by covid um, you know, this is some one of those, you know, it cuts across genders, cuts across identity politics and all of that. I think one thing perhaps absent from these kinds of rhetorics, which were repeated uh, often, and a, a part of it is definitely true, is that one aspect COVID doesn't cut across is the class lines, where it seems that if we just hone in on COVID, the COVID period and the, uh, the aftermath of it, um, many people lost their jobs. Um, many small businesses shut down. Um, you know, Many people got laid off. Uh, many people couldn't pay um, for their mortgages. Uh, people couldn't put food on the on the table for their kids in, in many, many um, instances. But when we look at right on top, right? Because even if you look at the middle, the middle class was affected too by the COVID pandemic. Many of us who are somewhat of a, a fit into that middle class, we faced pay cuts, so on and so forth as well but if you just look right at the top, it seems to be business as usual. More than that, it feels like business was booming on an extra for for many
1: people right at the top. Yeah, well, look at how different people make money. Maybe just take two exemplars. One, uh, uh, a working class person who loses their job during COVID, has to rely on savings, thereby eating into their savings to get by during COVID, and then later uh, is rehired somewhere But they have this this gap of months or perhaps even years where they're not making the the income they were making. and Instead, they were drawing down on whatever little savings they had. So keep that exemplar in mind and then think of an entirely different exemplar, someone who uh, makes most of their their income just by passively owning uh, a large amount of stocks or other financial wealth. Uh, That person may also have spent a lot of time indoors, but that didn't really affect their their income very much. If anything, it might have gone up because the value of their uh, stock ownership uh, and other financial claims on wealth uh, went up. So you have that's the really the the basic dynamic. And then accentuating that was the whole phenomenon of sellers inflation, which is sometimes called uh, greedflation. Uh, but really sellers inflation is a, is a better moniker for it because what it really encompasses is uh, large monopolistic firms realizing that they have greater pricing power and abusing that to raise prices above any increase in their costs of production to increase profits. So if you have that going on at the same time as the, the really basic dynamics I just mentioned, that would tend in the direction of concentrating wealth uh, ever further in the hands of you know the the very small percentage of of the global population that owns a significant amount of financial wealth
0: again a, a counter argument that people might bring up to that is that you know when you say you are a working person you lost your job person B um, you know invested in stocks their stocks the stocks rose some um, certain stocks rose during the pandemic their wealth doubled the the general assumption is that you see that person was smart he understood the financial markets. He understood the economy. He knew what he had to do to um, weather the pandemic storm, so to speak. Whereas the people who lost their jobs, if only they had the same um, talent, the same acumen, the same intelligence, the same um, um know-how, the foresight, they could have been in that.
1: Well, I mean, it's fundamentally a, a silly argument, not a very serious argument, because it, it all comes down to what claims on wealth did you have from the very beginning if you had significant wealth to invest uh, that's a completely different scenario than simply not having wealth to invest so you know try that argument out on you know a, a cab driver or any sort of manual worker in any number of the world cities and you'll get you know somebody laughing in your face because they would just say i just i simply didn't have the the wealth in order to profit from any sort of growth in the, in the stock market. Uh, my favorite example of, of uh, you know, the counter argument to that, that uh, argument is, uh, Michael Hudson wrote an article in Harper's Magazine, I think 2005, 2006, about the housing bubble, warning that uh, this was going to, to cause a great deal of, of economic pain. Uh, and then after the great financial crisis demonstrated that his analysis was fundamentally right, he was re-interviewed a, a few years later by Harper's, and they asked, you know, in, the, in light of uh, you know the movie, what was it, The Big Short, all of these people profiting massively by betting against the, the housing market, uh, considering you got the prediction right, did you make out with tons of money out of the, the whole episode? And he said, no, because I didn't have any massive bank willing to give me a, an enormous amount of credit so I could gamble. Uh, on the housing market. So it's really all just about the access to financial wealth. Are you already wealthy and and can use that wealth to invest? uh, Or do you simply not have the wealth and therefore there's really no way for you to uh, take advantage of any sort of increased wealth effect from increases in stock prices?
0: Do you think there is often a misconception by the general masses, right, Um, where we use the term rich very loosely, where you look at the small business owner taking home, let's say, you know, 30,000 ringgit a month and say, oh, that's a rich person. You know, Lee Chong Wei, he's a rich person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I think all types of inequalities and, and privilege need to be addressed but there is a huge difference, right, Peter, between a billionaire tycoon um, and your medium-sized business owner, um, your, your star athlete, etc. I mean, we are talking about immoral levels of wealth concentration here, exploitation, highlighted by Oxfam. Absolutely. In fact,
1: the, the person I would go to to explain this point is not a political economist, but rather a comedian uh, from the US, <laughs> uh, Chris Rock. Who had a great uh, kind of disambiguation skit uh, separating the word rich from the word wealthy, right. and in the example one of the examples he used was uh, famous basketball player Shaquille O'Neal or Shaq. You know he's rich. He he gets paid uh, tens of millions of dollars a year. Or he used to when he was playing basketball. Uh, but the guy who signs Shaq's checks, he's wealthy. Rich is something you could lose. You know, at a bad weekend in Las Vegas gambling. Uh, wealth is extremely hard to, to get rid of. Uh, you need to have a, a generation of, of total wastrels in a family who will somehow uh, manage to, to destroy uh, a family legacy well. Uh, whereas someone who's simply rich, uh, we're talking about a, a very different sort of of, of position in the economy. Uh, we're maybe talking like in the US, uh, maybe the, the, the 95th to 99th, uh, wealth percentile, but there's a, a, an enormous gap uh, between the the you know the bottom of the 99th percentile all the way up to the 99.99999, and that sort of wealth is just it's very hard to get rid of. <laughs> I mean, it, it allows uh, people enjoying that position in, in the economic system really, if they so chose, to do nothing. And and as John Stuart Mill uh, said about rentiers, that is, uh, people whose income is unearned income, using that classical economic distinction between earned income that you get from work and contribution to the economy versus unearned income, which you just get in the form of rent, whether that's from uh, financial wealth or actually owning property. Uh, John Stuart Mill said that the, the rentiers, they get rich in their sleep. Uh, they're, they're not doing anything or they don't need to do any anything actively. They can simply passively sit back and watch as their claims on wealth increase. Uh, there have been a, a number of analyses, one in a, in a very cutely named book, The Sun Also Rises, but sun is, is spelled S-O-N. Uh, and it just looks at family names uh, in the UK and finds that people who are families who are very wealthy even 500 years ago, uh, those names are still disproportionately represented in the list of the most wealthy Britons today. Uh, there's another uh, analysis that did the same for uh, Italy over, I think, the same period of time. So the one key difference is inheritance, that people are starting off life uh, with a, a massive amount of wealth that they can then either choose to do nothing with and just sit down and 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 live off of the uh, the passive income, Or for a lot of people, they'll they'll use it to invest and try to grow their own own businesses for reasons of inherent interest and enjoyment in uh, entrepreneurialism uh, or for status or both. Uh, But that's a a really key difference between the the very wealthy, the people at the very top of the uh, uh, wealth distribution uh, and the the rest of the population. Uh, The rest of the population might get a little bit uh, of money from a, a passing parent or, or relative, uh, but it's not in the realm of the amount of money you would need to purchase an entire business enterprise. Um, there's also some people that uh, go from relatively modest uh, means, uh, I, I say relatively modest, it's, it's not very free, frequent in developed countries that you would go from extremely poor uh, to extremely wealthy but you know your your bill gates uh et cetera who start off with some uh not insignificant amount of wealth or at least uh family connections that can invest in their business ideas and then they they get through a mix of of luck and hard work uh but we shouldn't discount the the luck factor uh they get to grow that that money through the development of a successful business into some serious wealth that will take many, many, many generations to get rid of, if at all. Is it
0: fair to describe the situation like this? You know, think of our society as a society of 50 people and 100 cookies. Cookies are resources in a cookie jar. Now, in our current society, you know, to paint a picture, three people people in this society own 99 cookies. The rest of society, fights over one cookie. So if you're a medium-sized business owner, you get a larger chunk of that one cookie. If you're a cleaner, you get the tiniest scraps of that one cookie. But it's still that one cookie and 47 people are fighting over that one cookie. Three people in this fictional society have 99 cookies all for themselves. Do you think that's a fair representation of of the of society or of the world at large?
1: Yeah, I mean, from country to country, it'll be a slightly different number of cookies for that that richest member of society, whether it's ninety eight, ninety, uh eighty, what have you. but the 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 broad point is applicable the world over. Uh, and yeah, and it goes to your earlier point about average people not really grasping the extent of wealth inequality and what it means in 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 real economic terms. Uh, to be wealthy, and how different that is from even the successful small business owner uh, who might own a, a a few restaurants or you know some some other small medium sized enterprise. Uh, that lack of understanding, I think, is is what makes the 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 cookie analogy very useful uh, to kind of bring it down to something very easily understandable.
0: On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We continue our discussion after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dachshund Johan and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, Political Economist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're unpacking the Oxfam 2024 report. So Peter, when we look at um, the period from the 80s onwards, we uh, many people call that the period of the neoliberal, uh, when it began, the neoliberal era of your Margaret Thatcher's, your Ronald Reagan's, and then the rest of the world as well. Um, and I, I guess just to contextualize this, uh, in a nutshell, the neoliberal era is when you know governments uh, you know started to privatize and outsource everything to private companies. the power of governments started to shrink, the power of private companies, corporations started to grow. How do you assess the role of neoliberal economic policies in exacerbating wealth inequality over the past
1: four decades or so? Yeah, that's a good question. By the, the the 70s and 80s, the what we have come to learn as neoliberalism uh was much more similar to the old form of economic liberalism uh from the, the first half of the, the 20th century than the more freewheeling theorizing of early neoliberals in the in the 30s and 40s. So the the recognition that uh government is the key structure of markets was still in still in play. It was still present in the 70s and 80s. But the the kind of market that government began to structure was one that was far more dominated by uh, a fewer number of players, basically uh, monopoly industries. And of course, monopoly has a couple of definitions. One is the, the very simple definition of there's just one seller in a given market. But then there's the the definition from economic theory which holds that a monopoly exists whenever uh a company is a price maker not a price taker that is when there isn't something close to perfect competition in a given market sector so that the firms in that sector actually have power to set prices whereas in in you know uh, neoclassical economic theory perfectly competitive markets essentially see uh, uh, profit rates shrink and shrink because more and more competitors uh, are able to undersell. So one of the key factors in, in the neoliberal era that have created this level of inequality are economic policies that allow for greater and greater market concentration, hence greater pricing power, Hence, uh, average people having less income because they have to spend more to buy all of the goods and services that they need. Their wages are are getting cut as well. Meanwhile, at the same time, the people who have all of the ownership claims on society uh, are reaping in or or taking in uh, more and more income and hence building their wealth. So that's kind of the the broadest uh, uh, sort of scope or or broadest picture to, to paint about the, kind of the, the fundamental nature of the neoliberal era and how it has produced uh, the levels of, of inequality we see today.
0: So seven out of the 10 of the world's biggest corporations have a billionaire CEO or a bri- billionaire as their principal shareholder. I'm wondering how do billionaire ownerships of corporations perpetuate uh, and amplify
1: existing inequalities? I think it's more of a of a symptom rather than a cause. Mm. Uh, I mean, certainly there's there's some causation going in the other direction. If you're a a billionaire who who owns a controlling share in a massive you know publicly traded firm, you're going to have you know your self interest is going to push you in the direction of supporting policies that protects uh, your wealth and protects the current wealth distribution. Uh, but I think most of the the causation goes in the other direction. That is. Uh, the, the, the so-called uh, free market policies to reduce government regulation of, of finance, to reduce uh, antitrust activities from government, to keep uh, markets competitive, these sorts of things are, are what allow for wealth concentration, that allow for uh, uh, 7 out of 10 CEOs at the world's top, whatever, 500, 2,000, whatever it is, corporations being billionaires. Uh, I think that's the 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 key uh, cause. and then there there is probably a, a bit of causation going in the other direction where whereby these billionaire owners uh, uh, lobby for and you know, make campaign contributions to ensure that uh, these policies continue to allow them uh, to maintain themselves in in this estate, where they are uh, owning a, a disproportionate share of the economy compared to you know, the, the the masses of people in the country uh, that they're in.
0: Um, when we look at many countries around the world, in the 70s, corporations were paying around 40-something percent of corporate tax, including here in Malaysia. And then today, it is about 20-something. It feels like a race to the bottom, especially in countries in Southeast Asia. And from it, it seems to me that as the corporate taxes were reducing... Um, mm-hmm. you're seeing this this kind of um, rise of um, you know racism um, where right-wing popular uh, populist leaders are, are coming about. You're seeing this this rise of tension among um, ethnic uh, ethnicities, um, gender, um, religious tensions. Uh, we are seeing the rise of right-wing um, religious ethno, ethno-religious groups and, and things like that. Do you think that's a, a correlation or, or a causation?
1: I think there's a lot of causation there. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a, a recent paper that just came out, a meta-analysis of tons of other papers trying to trace the relationship between the rise of right-wing populism and uh, neoliberal economic policies, uh, and they found that there was a very significant across many, many, many different studies. the the, the core common conclusion is that uh, inequality, economic inequality, deindustrialization uh, privatization, all of the, the components that we understand of, we understand as part of neoliberalism, uh, played a, a major role in creating the dissatisfaction that then led people to support right-wing populist parties because they found them to be the only, uh, parties that they knew of that were promising some sort of radical break from the status quo, which was more and more unlivable. Uh, for people, so I, I definitely think there's a a, a very big uh, uh, causal role of the greater inequality, the 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 worse and worse quality of life for average people, and the rise of right wing populism. And this is not this should really not come as as much of a surprise uh, if you if you go back to uh, Karl Polanyi's uh, The Great Transformation, uh, which he wrote in the 40s or 50s. Uh, He described basically the same thing occurring in the first half of the 20th century uh, through economic liberalism, those policies that produced a a similar uh, degree of inequality, uh, worse and worse living conditions for the majority, pushing them or or making rather uh, fascist parties more attractive because they represented a break from an unlivable status quo. So I think very much the, the same dynamic is in evidence today.
0: So this is another staggering um statistic. Just over zero point four percent of over one thousand six hundred of the world's largest and most influential companies are publicly committed to paying their workers a living wage and support the payment of a living wage in their value chains. I think this is important. What does this? What does it tell you about the way in which um corporations? Grow their, you know, become uh, grow their wealth, and
1: also mm-hmm. individuals who own these
0: corporations.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, it goes to the kind of uh, ideological side of of neoliberalism, the idea that, uh, you know, in the fantasy economic world that people are taught in college, uh, value is apportioned, or rather income and, and, and profits are apportioned directly according to the true value that people produce. So if you can get away with, with paying workers less, essentially from this ideological perspective, you've just discovered that people were being overpaid because now they're willing to take a lower wage. So we've just uh, eliminated an inefficiency, uh, they, would, they would say from their ideological perspective. Um, and that goes towards the uh, top end of the the spectrum as well that if you are are you know making a, a lot of money through your investments that's actually because you're creating the equivalent amount of true value to society uh, in the form of the additional money you've made whether it's just you know an increase in the value of your assets or an increase in income uh, regardless so and then of course, It's also a part of the story of of inequality. If you have uh, large corporations who are trying to cut costs and their major cost typically is labor, uh, if they're cutting their costs and increasing their profits, thereby increasing the the, the wealth inequality in society overall, because the few people who own these companies are seeing an increase in the value of the, the shares of the companies that they own, well, that essentially means that more wealth is being siphoned towards the top from the rest of society, and then you can add in all of the other aspects of of neoliberalism, from uh, the reduction in public investment, uh, the the reduction in creating public goods directly through the government, uh, the over reliance on the private sector to do everything that society needs, and you have the results that we see around us today. Um, I should also just mention that you know we we talk a lot about neoliberalism, but some of this is just inherent to any form of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your listeners might have read uh, Tomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century or maybe just read uh, the shortest summary of a book I've ever seen, which <laughs> comes down to three symbols, which is R greater than G. And basically what he shows is that whenever you have returns to investment, that is R, that is greater than the growth rate of the economy overall, that is G, you're essentially mathematically guaranteed to have an increase in, in inequality. Because what that represents is that the, uh, a small portion of society who tends to disproportionately own uh, all productive assets is getting wealthier and wealthier faster than the overall economy is growing. So there's no way uh, in which uh, inequality does not grow. And in, in the book, he shows a wealth of historical examples to demonstrate that this is really a, a fundamental uh, principle of, of capitalism. Uh, of course, you could have varieties of, of capitalism. You could imagine a, a capitalist economy in which uh, uh, taxation is used to uh, take away some of those returns to investment and then reinvest them in, in forms of public wealth, like a uh, healthcare system, uh, transportation infrastructure, et cetera. But that form of capitalism is uh, very much on the wane, uh, at least since the start of the neoliberal era.
0: The richest, according to Oxfam again, the richest 1% globally at, emit as much carbon pollution as the poorest two-thirds of the entire humanity. What is the connection between wealth concentration and carbon emissions?
1: Well, it's basically, it's it comes down to how the overall economic system is structured. Uh, we have a, an economic global uh, political economic system that is reliant on fossil fuel energy for just about everything. I think it's almost a little bit of a, of a red herring to look at just the, the consumption related emissions of the wealthy. Um, certainly that that uh, is the case that people with a great deal of wealth in their just personal consumption Uh, account for a far greater percentage of of total emissions than the world's majority. But it's really a a product of the overall system, the way the the global political economic system is structured overall. So in order to uh, uh, sharply reduce emissions, you basically need a complete rewrite of the global political economy. You need to shift from uh, fossil fuels for energy, the, the kind of core component, in any economy. I mean, if you look at the, the correlation between uh, energy use and GDP growth, it's, it's nearly one to one. That's a, such an important part of uh, productivity and prosperity. Uh, so it's really a matter of restructuring the, the overall system, and that would require, it seems, considering the failure of uh, market based solutions thus far it seems like it would require an unprecedented degree of intergovernmental cooperation on restructuring the the global economy. That means uh, massive public investments in building renewable energy capacity, which we've only seen in China thus far at anywhere near the the extent and the scale uh, required. But of course, the required solution is ideologically anathema within neoliberal ideology. That is, it, it cannot even be contemplated because it requires far too much uh, government intervention in the economy. Another way of saying that is it requires a great deal of government telling uh, wealthy people, no, you cannot do what you want. You're going to have to do what we tell you to do. Um, that's a, a kind of uh, a broad way of, of putting it, but it gets at the, the fundamental truth. And in an ideo- ideology like neoliberalism, wherein the, the core belief is that private entrepreneurs are somehow, well, somehow they're, they're supposedly through the magic of the market, through the through marketplace mechanisms, uh, supposed to be disciplined such that they produce the best possible result in terms of productivity, in terms of wealth uh, creation. And anytime the, the government attempts to, uh, make its own investments. It's just by belief uh, going to do a worse job. So you can understand how given the the, the dominant, the reigning economic ideology, what must be done to reduce uh, carbon emissions and restructure the entire global economy uh, is very difficult or, or meets a, a very powerful impediment.
0: So we have a big problem. The problem is getting worse. What needs to be done To address this issue? How do we
1: bridge the inequality gap? How do we redistribute wealth? Well, there's all sorts of of different policies that could be used to solve this problem. You could kind of uh, start with the the least radical uh, uh, solution, which would be to basically keep the the system more or less as it is today, you know, private ownership of of just about everything, but then using uh, wealth and income taxes that are much more progressive, uh, to redistribute uh, claims on wealth. It, 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 it almost sounds, I think putting it that way is, is not ideal because it makes it seem as though the initial distribution is the, the kind of natural or fair distribution. And then government is kind of taking money out of people's pockets and giving it to other people without regard uh, for, uh, you know, worth or, or what their contribution is. But really, the current distribution of wealth and income is a byproduct of the way that uh societies structure their economy through law so it, there is no kind of natural distribution that would occur uh you know without government government is 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 always implicated in the the structure of the economy through law and so people the current distribution of wealth and income is a product of that so the the easiest or rather the I guess, the least uh, radical solution would simply be to change the the structure through law so that the benefits of wealth production uh, are not able to be siphoned by a very small number of people who who, uh, have more ownership claims on wealth production than anyone else. Um, but, you know, on the on the other radical end of the of the spectrum, you know, what happened in, in China uh, during their revolution? Uh, essentially, uh, the government didn't entirely take over ownership of, of everything. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that if you just look at the Chinese flag, there's five stars. One of those stars represents the so-called national bourgeoisie, the, the people who owned Uh, the the largest enterprises in the Chinese economy, and other stars for the the small bourgeoisie, the small business owners. Um, But you could imagine a a revolution in which uh, a democratically controlled government takes over ownership of the entire economy and essentially keeps the people who are currently running uh, various enterprises in place, but just changes their relationship to the wealth generation of that entity. So instead of being a, an owner whose uh, property rights by law allow them to do whatever it is that they wish uh, with those ownership claims, uh, the government could simply redirect that that kind of wealth production uh, into other areas, infrastructure buildings, building schools, uh, health care, et cetera. So there's, there's a wide range of, of potential policies, but I think most people just look at sort of least disruptive the, the the ones that could be easily slotted into the present status quo and that would be things like a uh, uh, wealth tax more progressive income taxes uh uh stronger antitrust enforcement uh even promoting worker ownership of companies you know there was a proposal in i think it was sweden in the 1970s to essentially require all businesses over a certain size to, as part of the the compensation scheme for their employees, uh, uh, give them in payment for their work every year, uh, a small percentage of ownership of the company in which they work, such that over a period of of decades, uh, the workers of enterprises would become uh, majority uh, shareholders as well. So last question before
0: we uh, wrap this conversation up, Peter. Um, we are discussing a report by Oxfam. You know, what we are talking about today massive levels of inequality, the need to redistribute wealth is no longer just something that's being championed by communist and socialist parties, right? I mean, this is Oxfam, it's pretty mainstream. We have the World Bank researchers, like in a previous episode where we talked about saying roughly the same things, IMF really? researchers to say the same thing as well, the need to redistribute wealth, this is not sustainable, so on and so forth. The current trajectory is not sustainable. Yet, it doesn't seem like the needle is moving that much. And many countries still lack class consciousness, lack still, like we said, this whole idea of who even is the rich, the kind of wealth concentration there is, what does that mean? Um, there's still this this huge lacking in, when it comes to understanding these things. So I'm wondering, what can individuals, communities, and civil society do? How can we work together to address this issue of inequality?
1: The the first thing that comes to mind for me would be to uh, organize together so that you don't have these kind of disaggregated little little dots of, of organizations that are focusing on uh, very small local issues, but rather you have a a broader and more powerful network of such organizations that can kind of pool their weight and their resources uh, to achieve broader policy goals, uh, changes in actual economic policy. And some of the the first uh, policies that they could advocate if they are united and hence have a a greater weight to throw around in the political sphere uh, would be for a higher, first a a wealth tax uh, and then, a more progressive uh, income taxation, but also a kind of repudiation of neoliberalism in a in another direction, and that is advocating for greater public investment. That is, instead of relying on uh, individual private investors to somehow do the right thing for society overall as a result of just, just their pure self-interest, I think we've we've seen that in the world. It's been tested and it's failed. Uh, so instead, advocating for uh, much more massive public investment from the government uh, into whatever public goods people need healthcare, renewable energy, et cetera.
0: Peter, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Dashron. It was my pleasure. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, Political Economist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. This conversation is also available as podcast. You can look us on the BFM app, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to us on Spotify, I would really appreciate it. If you give us a follow, drop us a review, it would be really, really helpful. I'm Dr. Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.